everybody, another episode of Mentally Unscripted, your number one podcast for trying to find signal in the sea of noise. Scott, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, man. I am ready to fight off the oncoming dystopia. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the dystopia that's inevitable, right? Exactly. Um, yeah. Uh, well, you know, we're on our way to the Hunger Games, I feel like. Uh, I just oh, hope man. that I'm not the first participant. What, okay, so so who would you be Katniss? Would you, would you want to take that lead role or would you just be one of the other, the, the spectators? Um, you know, I, I think I'd rather be a spectator, honestly. Um, I kind of feel like, though, if that if I had to be any role, um, I forget the character's name, but kind of like the sciencey guy who was in the, okay. the second episode. Yep. Um, the guy who played the CIA agent, CIA agent in the new James Bond movies. I kind of feel like I'd yep. probably be that guy. You know, okay. The one with all the ideas, but no physical gifts. <laughs> That's that's not. I guess that's not a bad thing, right? right? Um, <laughs> I don't well, know if my ideas would be really helpful in a uh, winner takes all battle to the death, but you know we'll see. Well, you know we don't know until we try. <laughs> exactly. So, so audience members, uh, give us a thumbs up if you're looking for us to uh, to go into a Hunger Games uh, battle royale. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Scott's referring to uh, dystopia. He's, he's talking about the the conversation about the Great Reset. And there's been so many posts and memes about the Great Reset and where it's going and, and this, uh, the concept of it being a grand conspiracy. We thought, let's, let's tackle it uh, mentally unscripted. So uh, th- this was an interesting one for me because as I, as I dug into it, it was, it was one of those areas that just felt very uh, unfounded. You know, this, this idea that it is and isn't a conspiracy, it kind of si- – seem to sit in both both camps um and yet um and, and yet at the end of the day i'm really not sure what it even means so i, I do want to start before we get into the actual great reset uh just actually read what wikipedia defines as the world economic forum the world economic forum is is the um, publisher if you will of this concept of the great reset uh that post covid we need to rethink how we organize every aspect of our lives to achieve a better life. Uh, and if you think that sounds like a little little too much utopia, yeah, I think it does to, to Scott and I. So um, the WTF mission is stated as it's committed to improving the state of the world by engaging business, political, academic, and other leaders of society to shape global, regional, and industry agendas. So they, they want to shape agendas. Now, from what I could tell, they don't actually have any power. What comes out of these discussions, and, and the most notable one is the annual discussion in Davos, uh, where you you have a series of, of weather, very well-connected and, and billionaires sitting in a room talking about how they can change the world. And from what I can tell, don't really have much disagreement on anything other than, well, we need to pay the peasants. Um, they, they, there, isn't, there is no real actionable uh, or action that comes out of this other than discussion. So uh, that's that's kind of number one that I want to I want to share that. Number two, when I looked at what was happening in Davos today, they said that they want to engage business, political, academic, and other leaders. Well, when I looked at the people that they were highlighting for Davos this year, and that just happened, I think, a week or two ago, it was pretty much all political leaders uh, with a few financiers from Europe. 
So when they say they want business and, and academic, I'm not sure who they're referring to since they were not really top of the top of the mass, so to speak. Uh, and and of course, this year, the big uh, keynote, I believe, was Xi from China. So uh, I think that says something about how they're, what they're signaling to the world about um, what their what their communication is and how they're trying to engage people. But Scott, when you heard about it and, and I guess learned about the Great Reset, um, what were your thoughts on the on the idea that it was a grand conspiracy? Um, yeah, so when I first heard it, it was sort of in that uh, that context that this was some grand conspiracy that these folks were trying to perpetrate on the world. And I think when I first heard it, they there was even some discussion that COVID was some force, a virus intentionally unleashed on the world in order to jumpstart the movement towards this grant uh, to the Great Reset. Uh, now though, that I've, I've read more about it, um, I'm in agreement with you. I mean, these folks are pretty out in the open about what they're trying to do. And so I don't know that it rises to the level of a conspiracy. Um, the conspiracy aspect of it is maybe what their true intentions are, you know, on, on its face, like we mentioned before the podcast, like it seems like it's a lot of virtue signaling. It's a lot of economic fairness, a greener future, we're going to save humanity from itself type thing. But when you look at the nuts and bolts of it, what it essentially ends up doing is shifting control of the means of production and wealth that goes along with that to an elite class, a class of oligarchs, aristocrats, whatever you want to call it. And meanwhile, the rest of the people would form a sort of a second class of folks who, uh, you know, who are subsisting off of a universal basic income, uh, most likely at a lower standard of living than where we're at now. Um, and, you know, when you think about it and we they want to move us to a greener new future, well, that's going to require the elimination of fossil fuels. And our technology at this point is not where we can economically replace fossil fuels with renewable energy. So that's going to cause an impact on uh, people who don't have a lot of disposable income to spend. You know, think about it. You can fill your gas tank up with two bucks, you know, two bucks a gallon right now or so. Um, but how much would it cost to, you know, have a car that, or how much would it cost people if everything that they did had to rely on solar and, and wind power, right? We just, we're just not there technologically yet to where we can economically replace fossil fuels. So, that's going to lower the standard of living. Uh, also, one of the other things that I thought was interesting, and maybe I'm getting a little too far ahead here because we haven't really gotten into sort of what the grand scheme is, um, but ultimately what's going to happen is you're going to have this elite class, um, this governments, corporations, uh, you know, religious leaders are going to be working together to sort of make sure that everything everything that's produced what people do is all moving towards this goal of equality, economic fairness, or, and, and a green future. So that is going to just limit your choices as far as what you can do. Um, so products that we take for granted now, you know, if it, you know, like you mentioned before the podcast, silk underwear. Okay. I don't wear silk underwear, but I know there's a lot of people who do, right? And they derive value from it. So they're willing to pay for it. Well, if silk underwear isn't part of the plan, guess what? You're not going to have your silk underwear anymore. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, <laughs> that is the great example. And, and and just for the audience members, I took that from Wealth of Nations, Adam Smith. So you you stop thinking I've got a dirty, dirty yeah. mind. Yeah, yeah. Quit quit trying to blame a philosopher who's long been dead. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Well, yeah, I think you you were very very much going to the end of the what you see as the outcome of of if they actually were able to to implement these um, these types of goals and and we we should really I guess get a little even closer to what they've what they plan so or what what they're talking about because I think there's a there's a in in, in the so right now there's a lot of discussion about how people digest information so you go back 40 50 years uh, at least I'll use the, the United States as an example and probably most of Western Europe you, you do have different media outposts but you primarily have centralized access points and particularly when it came to television in the United States there were only a, a few different uh, media channels well that's with the internet been blown up and so now we have everyone getting different access to information constantly. And then, of course, social media heightens how we receive information and the way in which we view it. So you have these memes going around about the great reset that it's, it's coming to destroy your life. And I think it feeds into the fear, rightly so in some, some regards, of, of what people have experienced over the last year under COVID, where we've seen lockdowns, uh, we've seen rioting, uh, we've seen loss of jobs, we've seen complete... Um, inability to govern, I think, at every level of the government. I, I think that's a pretty, uh, a pretty sensible comment at, at this point in time. Um, and so, I think people are right when they when they start hearing these grand plans and visions. Right, right as we are trying to exit what was uh, probably one of the most challenging years for most people in, in recent memory for them. Uh, it's it's right to be skeptical, and and I always come back to that comment from uh, I I first heard it, and I think it was from Rahm Emanuel, who was chief of staff for Obama at the time. Uh, I believe that was his role. Who said, you know, never, and I'm paraphrasing, never let a, a crisis, a good crisis, go to waste. Meaning, whenever, no matter what situation you're faced with, if it's a crisis, it's an opportunity for you to move your agenda forward. And so that's exactly what people are worried about here. Yeah. Okay. I think, that, I think right? um, yeah, sorry to interrupt you there, but I think there's a lot of confirmation bias going on here. Um, people, they want to think that everything that's going on that has put them in these bad positions is being caused by someone else and that there's some grand scheme going on. So when they see things like lockdowns and, uh, you know, talk of these medical passports and immunization passports and things like it's, it's easy to kind of latch on to the idea that this is some grand conspiracy theory. Um, right. When, you know, like you said, it, it's probably just a lot of powerful people with incentives uh, to take advantage with the incentive to take advantage of the situation to increase their power and their wealth with uh, little disregard as to what it does to the average person. Yes. And, and I would, I would point out sort of two additional models that I, I think we talk about, but uh, should come up here. And one of them is, is Occam's razor, which is the idea that the simplest explanation is often the, the, the one you should use lacking any other data. So what you just described, I think, is, is the simplest model that would describe why this is coming out today versus pre-COVID, 
right? So rather than there having to be a coordinated effort to release um, COVID uh, in China, allow it to spread across the world, then build up uh, a master plan for lockdowns, you you could and 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 that to be the the impetus for this discussion about a great reset. It's it's much simpler to say, listen, these people have had this idea for a long time. A crisis hits the world, and they say, okay, now's the time. We we, we got to tell people, you know, now now people are more pliable. We're going to talk to them about these ideas. So that I think that's that is the. Um, that, that is something that you should be considering when, when assume, before you go full bore uh, conspiracy thoughts around the Great Reset. The second one is is what you just described, which is Hanlon's razor. Don't attribute to malice, which can be better uh, attributed to incompetence. And I, I don't think you have to go to the level of incompetence yet as much as you have to think that people are are – they, they go beyond their expertise and, and they're willing to minimize second order effects and, and, and limit some of their thinking and their creativity on the downside of some of their ideas as they are looking for ways to solve problems. Now, when you look at the manifest of who's attending Davos, it's a group of people whose role, like it or not, in today's world is to solve problems. They're, they're global leaders, they're heads of countries, they're heads of economic uh, it's going to be the Central Bank of, of Europe, ECB, uh, the IMF. And all of those people are told, you have to solve the world's largest problems. And whatever those problems are of the day, if it's climate change, if it's poverty, they're told that they're responsible for it and they feel the weight of having to do that. So they're going to be biased towards taking action. They're going to be biased towards um, of trying to make change rather, rather than – perhaps identifying a set of problems and saying we don't actually have a solution. So that that's something to consider. Um, but why don't why don't we talk a little bit about what they're actually saying uh, in, in this this great reset? Because if you actually go through the literature, there's very few specifics. And most of them seem to be very high level lofty goals, which would Align very tightly with the definition I gave at the beginning of the podcast, which is basically we want to set agendas. We don't actually want policy, right? So uh, when I was reading through from their website, they, they had three separate areas uh, that they wanted to, to highlight. And uh, one of them was fairer outcomes. Another was advancing shared goals. And the third and the last one is harness the innovations of the fourth industrial revolution. All right, so let's let's kind of break these down. So the idea of fairer outcomes, what, what do they mean by fairer outcomes? Because fair to one does not mean fair to, to somebody else. Let's, let's start there. But they say, well, we want improved coordination um, across, I, I guess, countries and jurisdictions, for example, for tax and regulatory and fiscal policy. They, they wanted upgraded trade arrangements. They want to create the conditions for a stakeholder economy, and they want to achieve more equitable outcomes. And this also includes uh, ideas that the government should implement long overdue reforms that promote more equitable outcomes, including change to wealth taxes, withdrawal of fossil fuel subsidies, and new rules governing intellectual property, trade, and competition. So I'm going to pause there. And then this was taken directly from from the website. We'll include it in the show notes. Uh, 
Scott, when you hear those mm. those terms, and just if that's all you heard about the Great Reset, what are your thoughts? Well, first, I mean, I'm in favor of withdrawing the fossil fuel subsidies. Um, if we can bring the, uh, the subsidies that are paid to these fossil fuel manufacturers or get rid of them and bring the costs more in line with uh, what they really should be in the free market, that could encourage um, more more companies and researchers to start getting into the the green energy game. But as long as we're subsidizing the fossil fuel energy and uh, the energy sector, um, we're helping them bring their costs down. So that's just going to keep fossil fuels on the market that much longer. Um, so, you know, from that aspect, you know, anything that's less government for me is a good idea. Now, as far as the other things, all of those require far more government than what we have now. Um, you know, I think one of the things that got us into the place we're at now is too much government. Uh, when, when the government interferes with the economy and with the social system, they create distortions. And those distortions, they have a rippling effect, right? As they just grow through our economy and through our society, uh, causing problems. So, you know, why do we want to invest in more government to solve problems that we're created by the government in the first place um you know in fairness you know fairness it's 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 a great goal right i don't think anyone's going to say that fairness is not um some something that we should strive for but it, it seems to me when i was reading this they're talking about fairness as far as outcome goes and not fairness as far as opportunity goes um and i don't know maybe you you saw something that i didn't see but to get fairness of outcome, you are going to need an incredibly regulated society. Uh, we mentioned before on one of the previous podcasts, the story of Harrison Bergeron was a Kurt Vonnegut short story. And yeah. just the, uh, in order to create fairness, to, in order to make all people equal in their outcome, there was such a massive program to, you know, put little, uh, you know, like earpieces in people's ears that would buzz in their head, you know, the smart people's ears that would buzz in their head whenever they started to have a complicated thought. People who could jump higher were having to wear weights, you know, things like that. And yes, it's absurd, but how are you going to create fairness in outcomes, right? That's, that's my big right. question. You know, how are we yeah. going to get there? I, well, I, I think that's the, the right question people should ask. The, the other challenge, well, I'll say a few things. All of the, the, the ideas are fantastic uh, in the sense that if you could actually give more people – so if there were fewer people dying of poverty today, if there are fewer people uh, – fewer, victim, uh, fewer victims of crime today – if we had less concern with wars and conflict, you could you could think that that is is preferable, and and I would I would say just at first blush that sounds fantastic. However, we know that there's a trade off in every action that you take. So when we t talk, for example, about improved coordination, for example, in taxes. The first point that comes to mind is the actions taken by Ireland over the last several decades to improve business opportunities in their country. So uh, they, they basically created service center. So they were called the sick man of Europe. Ireland is this, this country that is just 
uh, always struggling with poverty. What they have is they have they have good, smart workers who need opportunities to jobs. So the the Irish uh, government creates plans to incentivize businesses to set up shop there with low or no taxes. And the through uh, because of the way that all the tax policy works globally, it created an opportunity for multinationals to set up corporations there and to set up heads. And so what did it do? It improved the economy of Ireland. There is There are games that are played be, between populations that have uh, that are looking for for opportunity and to improve their their lot in life, and I, as I read this, and there's criticism. The European Union criticizes the United States people. Uh, government may criticize the the Irish um, the Irish arrangement. In fact, Andrew Yang, when he was running for president last year, part of his policy and how he would pay for UBI was to get rid of the arrangement that actually benefited the Irish people. Now, now you have to think about that for a minute. He wants to pay a UBI payment to all citizens in the United States of $1,000. Well, how does he do it? He taxes corporations and he makes sure that they have to repatriate profits back into the United States. In order to do that, the Irish are worse off. So when I and, and I bring it back to this, when I think about fairness outcomes, how is that fair for the struggling person in in the United States, or is it more fair for the for the people in Ireland to have the arrangement they have today? And who gets to decide? And that that is a great example when they talk about tax regulation and the coordination of it for being more fair. It's not. It's very unclear to me who is going to have to pay the price to achieve the fairness. And so, uh, and I, I would likely go through every single one of these aspects and, and, and probably have a similar theme that should, should be a question for every single person that would read this and think, if you have a politician in your country or in your jurisdiction that's saying, I love the Great Reset, we should all follow through with it, I would ask, well, what's the cost to my country, to my citizens, to my people. And that by itself speaks to another problem I have with this entire agenda is that it ignores the fact that we're populations and we're divided into countries and, and subdivided into states and municipalities, cities, towns. And sort of the Nassim Taleb concept of, of how you treat the people around you is going to be different than how you treat the other people in your country and certainly different from how you're going to be concerned with people outside of your country. So how, how is it when we're talking about fairness and we're talking about uh, a, a person that lives off less than a dollar a day in Bangladesh, which is a, a concern, I suppose, to everybody, what is the cost that I'm having to pay? And, and what about the people, you know, last summer in the United States, we had people all over the United States talking about social injustice and the fact they don't have opportunity. Well, are they going to get more opportunity or are they going to have to suffer as well so that the Bangladeshi gets more opportunity? And which one should I care for first? And, and, and none of the everything that's discussed here seems to ignore that cost. So right. that's the and, first first thought that comes to mind. Yeah. Yeah. And kind of to add on to that, I, 
I was listening to a podcast with Michael Rechtenwald, um, who wrote some articles over on Mises.org about the Great Reset. Um, he was on the John Tom Woods show uh, a couple weeks ago, and he was talking about how nationalism would be the biggest impediment to this, to the Great Reset. Uh, so in order to get the Great Reset to work, all the countries, all the companies, corporations, right, all these major players in the world are going to have to get on board. So how are you going to convince one small country like Ireland that it's in its best interest to to get on board and start being a part of the program? I think um, in game theory, they've got the prisoner's dilemma where, you know, it's always to the benefit to be selfish um, if – yeah, it's, it's to the benefit of you, of the prisoner to be selfish and try to rat out the other guy in order to get a better deal um, than it is to stay quiet and just go along with the program. Because um, th- that's how you're going to get the most out of it. That's how you're going to that's how you're going to get the most prosperity for your country. So how mm-hmm. are you going to convince the Irish and some of these smaller countries that it's to the that they need to step that back and act to the benefit of, like you said, the Bangladeshis or the, the Americans or the, you know, the, you know, Iranians or whoever. So how, how is that going to happen? And how are you going to tone down that nationalist rhetoric and how you, those nationalist feelings, especially in a place like the U S where we've always been, you know, we've been for the most part, you know, proud of being Americans and, and our sort of, uh, you know, kind of cowboy individualist reputation. Um, around the world so how mm-hmm. how's that going to change who's going to change that and who's going to enforce it and what's what's that right. going to look like like what kind of a regulatory state are we going to need to enforce it yeah and and that's exactly where if you're reading through the the great reset and you start having uh, uncomfortable feelings of a grand conspiracy you should realize there are no teeth to any of what they're proposing right now when it actually comes to congress and um, or executive orders by the president, that's where I think the concern can certainly uh, rise. But let me let me ask you, as I, I know we, we talked a little bit about it and we, we traded some articles on it, but this idea of the stakeholder economy, and, and I, I know there were also articles from the Mises Institute uh, describing the challenges with actually implementing the stakeholder economy. So Scott, would you be able to give us a better description of how you interpreted that language based on what you read? Yeah, so my understanding of it is basically what I alluded to early earlier. It's going to be the idea that the stakeholders are the the corporations that are on board with this idea of economic fairness and a a green future, a green world. Um, so those companies they'll be able to benefit. They're the ones who th- there's going to be a shifting of um, the means of production into these companies. And these companies are going to be the ones who are allowed to generate wealth and power. And any company that isn't on board with that is just going to get pushed out of the market, get pushed out of business. Okay, mm-hmm. so you're, you're going to have these stakeholders in this ideology of the Great Reset benefiting and anyone else is uh, just going to be left out in the cold. Um, I think a good example that I heard is uh, with Parler and their recent issues with Amazon Web Services. Um, now, this wasn't so. If, I'm sure everyone who's listening knows this, but um, Parler was being hosted on Amazon's Web Services platform. Amazon decided that Parler was not um, abiding by Amazon's terms of services. 
in terms of service, so Amazon booted them off. Okay, so that's an example. Is you have a a larger, more powerful stakeholder who is engaged in this sort of um, this cultural Marxism, this, this woke culture that we have now, telling another company, we don't think you're towing the line, so you're gone. Okay. Right. Um, you know, and we saw it with Gab a few years ago. Now, what's interesting with Gab is Gab is still around. They set up their own servers and their own infrastructure. But so Gab wouldn't be dependent on a company like Amazon Web Services, but they would be dependent on the next level down, right? They're still dependent on the uh, their ISP and the and the folks who provide the the backbone to the internet, right? So there's right. always going to be some company there that can put pressure on the smaller companies. So that's yeah. this is that's what I was saying before is it, it's going to really result in the elimination of choice to the consumer, okay? And yeah. and the fewer of these stakeholder companies there are, the more monopolistic their practices can be. And this is this is kind of this is one of the hypocrisies in the thing that I find interesting is we hear a lot of railing about these huge companies that have all its monopolistic power, and the Great Reset is supposed supposed to create more economic fairness by doing what creating more monopolies, you know. Right. And we can argue whether they're a monopoly or not, but the thing is, is you're concentrating power into a, a few a few small hands. And yeah. these companies are going to take their direction from the government, you know, so there's going to be even more influence on it. So, um, and, and, and I, I think to quickly point out when you have fewer companies and they are more monopolistic, you have greater chance of fragility uh, in, in a system, right? You have the, the, the larger the number of nodes you have in a distributed system, the, the more resilient it is. And, and one of their goals, which we can talk to in a minute, is a more resilient system and a more resilient economy. So right there, you have another tension that they aren't addressing and that they refuse to acknowledge the cost of trying to address that. So it, it, it again, speaks to a lot of what many people probably see in this whole idea of the Great Reset is that it's it's a concept of ideas of utopian, let's get better world without acknowledging that there's a there's a challenge or a cost, whatever you want to call it, to actually achieving some of these goals. And, uh, you know, the stakeholder economy. Yeah, I think there's there's all the aspects that you talked about, sort of a, a concentration of manufacturing and origination within a smaller subset of the market. There's also this concept that the stakeholders are all of us. So all citizens are now. Uh, members of this stakeholder economy, and we should all be benefiting from the economy. And again, in concept, it sounds interesting. Well, why should more of us be uh, as members, I guess, of the human race? Why can't we all benefit from the advances regardless of where they come from? That all sounds good. I, I, I can agree with that. And to me, that's the Star Trekky type of view of what they're suggesting. Let's go more Blade Runner. Um, the, the, the challenge with actually implementing that is that just like the game theory that we previously talked about is if everyone is a stake, as a shareholder and a stakeholder in this economy, who, who's, if there's ever a cost born to one member of that society, do they have a veto power over the products and services that are created? Right. Um, and when you start looking at the cost, there's, there's, there's a cost born on everybody at some point. I mean, there's there's no 
products and services that are created that are entirely neutral on the environment. There is always a cost. And, and I'm sure someone in the notes could say, well, that's not true. Here's a, here's a list of products that, are, that have zero emissions and zero carbon footprint. And to that, I would respond, okay, are you telling me that there's no other uses for the products that came in, that there was something else that wasn't competing for that input? And so I, I feel like that's the game that we play. So how do you actually make a zero cost product for all citizens that actually has a benefit for all citizens? And, and I think what you find is that's, that's impossible. And so it, it reverts back to a set of planners and organizers who are choosing, well, these products have the lowest costs to the greatest number of people, utilitarian type of mindset, and therefore we're going to produce those. Regardless of what the market is, we've completely extracted the market mechanism to decide on which which products are best based on pricing, and we move to more of a planning. And and that right there, we, we know, can lead to shortages. Uh, I, I think our example of the USSR, if, if, if these ideas were, were really uh, superior to other market mechanisms, we would have seen a different outcome for the USSR, in my opinion. It's 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 easy enough to say, well, no, that could be an incompetence, or that was just that was there were other issues in the USSR with with uh, perhaps their their use of their um, natural resources. But I would look at this and say, well, if if these are all greater outcomes and they're better for society, wouldn't a society already be organizing in this way to get the most out of it? And and therefore the game game theory would suggest that everyone would be trying to c- compete with them. So it's again, it's unclear to me. I think that I think these concepts are just they're not even half baked. What, what's pre baking? Is there is there some kind of baking that that isn't even even like yeah that doesn't even get us that far? Is it is it just toasting the top? I don't know. Right, right, yeah, and you know, adding on to your no free lunch uh, topic there, or what you just said about a no free lunch. I mean, yeah, we can create products that are that are zero carbon emitting. But there's going to have to be technology that goes into that. So then what is the result of that technology when it's worn out and no longer useful? So, uh, right. you know, as far as I know, we still don't have a way to dispose of the batteries from the electric cars when they go bad. Right. So yep. you, you have these toxic outcomes or these these toxic right. you know waste products. So and, and I know that electric cars are not zero the cars are zero emission, but, you know, you still have to generate the electric power to charge them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I get that they're not carbon zero, net carbon zero or carbon zero, whatever the, the phrase the phrase is. But the point is, is you're still creating some sort of a waste that you got to figure out what to do with. So are we just shifting the problem from CO2 emission into the air to what do we do with these piles of Tesla batteries? Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and again, like well, it's trade-offs, right? Which Which is the better which is the better thing to go to. And, you know, in talking about the carbon emissions, right, they didn't say zero carbon emissions. They said net zero carbon emissions, which means, right, there's, there's going to have to be some mechanism in place to say, okay, well, we need this product over here and it emits so much carbon. So now we need to change this other product over here to, to offset that. Or, or what? Right. You know, how is that going to work? We need to plant so many trees, right? Who's, who's going to make all those decisions? And this is one of the problems with the central planned, centrally planned economy is how do you know? How do you know where to put the resources? Right. So. And, and, and if, if you are, are pushing back on Scott and say, well, we know, I, I want you to run a, a very simple experiment. You're in a town 
and it has no restaurants. What kind of restaurant should you open? How many restaurants should be there? What should they charge? Now, a central planner may look at it and say, well, there's there's 100 people in this town. I'm going to think that they're each going to eat at that restaurant once a week. And, and therefore, I'm going to have to charge this much. You can see how they start to back into this figure. Then they open the restaurant and people show up there. Everyone eats there seven days a week. All of a sudden, oh, fan, you know, we didn't plan for all that food, so now there's a food shortage. Or the opposite happens. No one goes to the restaurant because the cook sucks. Well, wait a second. We planned for all this food and it's just rotting. That is exactly why we talk about market mechanisms because planning, it's, it's a great place to start and it's a terrible place to finish. You really need to have a mechanism of feedback. So you need feedback loops and planning tries to eliminate the feedback loop. They think that they can bypass the feedback loop, but that's exactly what the market is. That's exactly what market pricing is. It's not a perfect solution to all of our problems. However, it is a preferred solution to planning for a variety of reasons. Yeah. That's my two cents on that. Yeah. You know, keeping up with your restaurant example, let's say in a free market, you look and you say, okay, 100 people here, there's no restaurants, I'm going to open a French restaurant. And then a competitor comes along and says, you know what, I'm going to open a Mexican restaurant. And you see that the Mexican restaurant has a line out the door every night, while you have maybe two patrons in your French restaurant every night. So what do you do? You're like, well, heck, <laughs> the people here want more Mexican, so I'm going to switch over to a Mexican restaurant, right? A central planner would have difficulty figuring that out, deciding just you know on what cuisine is in demand. And I know people have claimed that with AI coming, you know, the AI will be able to figure all this out, but you know, still have to put the inputs into the system. And so, right. how do you know what inputs to put into the system? So, there's a an essay called I Pencil. And I'll put a link to it in the show notes. And this is a great example. So you have this pencil, right? This stick of wood with some graphite in it, uh, you know, a, a hunk of rubber on the end with a metal band holding it on to the, to the piece of wood. Does anybody really know from beginning to end how to create a pencil, right? When you consider, you know, all the equipment that you need to mine the graphite to uh, get the lumber, to transport it, you know, so transportation, transport, Portation requires tires, so you have to mine the rubber to get the tires. You have to have somebody who can build the trucks and maintain them and all that, right? So from beginning to end, it's a hugely complex process to create a, you know, 10 cent writing instrument. So as a central planner, how do you put all that together to make sure that pencils get delivered to the people at the lowest cost, right? You don't. You let the market do it. All right. right. Each person that's involved in the, that phase will talk to the people that they need to depend on for their inputs. Um, and and in the end, you end up with a pencil and you can yeah. go anywhere and buy one for, you know, one coin out of your pocket. Yeah. And, and if you question the example that he gave, research the Soviet Union and their planning and the spreadsheets that they created to try and manage all of the inputs needed for a pencil or any other product and you'll realize the complexity of the problem but um, so so I, I guess just to keep us moving here on, on going over some of the other components so we talked uh, about fair outcomes and some of the challenges that you have when you 
claim a fairer outcome. One of the, the next tenets or pillars is advanced shared goals. And here they talk about equality, sustainability, and the new system. And the new system would uh, have the characteristics of being more resilient, equitable, and sustainable. And I think we, we touched on this a little bit, but you know, when you hear that, Scott, what, what is your initial reaction? <laughs> what are they talking about? I mean, that is, <laughs> I mean, that, could it be more vague? Yeah. It's, I mean, that's the most vague, um, you know, I know we say we try not to make this a show about our opinions, but I don't know that I've ever heard the such vague garbage, um, right. before. Um, and, and I know a lot of people say this type of thing, so it's pretty common, but I mean, what is the fairness? I mean, what are their shared goals? What is, what is all this? You know, again, how are, like we mentioned earlier, right? How are we going to get every country to decide that the goal that the WEF or whatever the, the UN, whoever it is, has put forth is truly the best goal for them? So, yeah. I mean, this, this is something where it's, it's great to hear, but tell me how you're going to get there. Give me more right. information on it. Right. Um, well, and, and, and one of the, the points that they bring out as examples would be green urban infrastructure. I, I go back to what we've already touched on. The idea that green urban infrastructure, so if, if the market tells you that it's more sustainable uh, or that it's got a lower cost, and let's, let's remember that people work in dollars and cents, whether they should or not, I can't, I'm not going to, I'm not going to pontificate on that. I'm just identifying the truth that they do. So uh, the idea that green urban infrastructure should be implemented as a sustainable tool, it implies that we actually have identified a set of tools that are are truly green and sustainable. The point about the electric cars is, I think, a, a great example where people are minimizing the cost of actually creating the batteries and don't actually have a plan on the back end for uh, recycling them. So... I would ask the same thing about green urban infrastructure. Are, are we are we creating tools that are not really uh, green or sustainable, but today they appear that way? And to the best of my knowledge, and I, I I've done a lot of research. My you know my wife and I we looked at building a home, and we we looked at different types of building materials and what could you do that would be more green. And you'd be surprised how many of the materials came down to just basic concrete. Right, they, they they didn't look a lot greener than I than you would. Um, <laughs> they, they didn't look a lot greener than standard building materials. And of course, there's improvements that can be made if you're and, and there's there's improvements to electricity grids as an example that you can make. Right, perhaps that's a good thing. Uh, but what cost? At what cost are we making these changes? So. And, and, you know, again, the vagueness of it is frustrating if people are really worried about this. When someone says equality, are we talking about equality of outcome or equality of opportunity? Or are you just leaving it up to the interpretation of the readers? Because those have very different incentive structures that you're going to then uh, prop up. So, I, yeah, I, I, I don't know that I, you know, without more of a measure – here of saying, well, here's what we mean by equality. Here's what we mean by sustainability. Even what they describe the new system as resilient, equitable, and sustainable. Um, we already talked about some of the challenges with building a resilient system when you concentrate information. 
the idea that it's equitable, I, I guess, again, how are you defining equitable and then sustainable? That that term just doesn't seem to have enough definition for us to be able to measure it. Right. And, you know, one thing about resilient I thought about was, you know, I mean, resilient against what exactly? Um, mm-hmm. Now, one of the things I read is that they want to move away from this idea of the idea of competition and creative destruction. And so for the folks out there who don't know, creative destruction is the idea that a you'll have an established industry and then some upstart with a new idea or a new technology will come in um, and that technology is superior. It'll displace the old industry. So Uber and Lyft versus the taxi industry, I think, is the, one of the best ones I can think of. Or um, personal computers replacing typewriters or calculators replacing slide rules, right? These are the things. That's kind of the creative destruction idea. So when they say resilient, does that mean that they want to protect these entrenched industries? Because right. they're saying resilient and eliminate creative destruction. Well, then we're not going to have any innovation if that's the the thing, or we're going to have innovation that's only approved by some central planning authority. Well, then, like you mentioned earlier, how do you know we're getting the best innovation then? Right. And you know, there's examples in the market where the this the inferior technology won. Um, VHS and Betamax um, is the one example most people go to. But I think for the most part, um, it, it, you know, the market does a pretty good job of deciding what the superior technology is. Um, you know, doesn't always get it right. But that's the thing is like, no one's ever saying that the market's going to always get it right. The market's not perfect. And you know, if the market's not perfect, well, how can we expect humans to be perfect in anticipating everything that, that this, this type of society would require? You know, I just, I don't know. I, and you know, I would like to see, I would like to see some details an actual plan on how they, how they think they're going to achieve all of this. Right. And, you know, and and let's let's give them some some credit and say, well, here's here's a template of of agenda topics that should be put into your government's agenda, and so that's that's perhaps how they're they're talking about it. Now, if that's the case, I'm not sure you're going to have governments that are going to say anything against what's said here. It's it's so watered down and tepid. It it um, it just doesn't really. I mean, who, who would disagree with that? Who, who would say, listen, I actually want to build an economy that's less equitable. I, I'm really hoping that my my industry and my buildings are, are instead of having 100 years sustainability, they're only 10 years. Uh, no one's going to say that, right? Um, so, you know, right. okay, you're putting this into the agenda. That's, I, I suppose, fine. Right. Um, yeah. And, you know, it, it, I mean, it's this, like you mentioned before, the bias towards action or the illusion of control, right? right? This, this idea that, well, we've got, there's this problem, we have to do something about it, so we have to take action right now. Well, the problem is, is we're not in a point where economically we really can take massive action, right? We, yeah. we kind of have to develop the technology. We can't just go out there and suddenly start, you know, like part of the Green New Deal is like to what? tear down buildings that couldn't be retrofitted to be green and then retrofit the buildings that were more modern to be green. Well, I mean, that's going to cost a massive amount of money. Um, and yeah, it's great. It's going to put a lot of people to work, but right. There's second, there's trade-offs, there's second order consequences to that. Um, because the government 
is going to have to pay these people. And that is going to cause them to have to print massive amounts of money, which is going to lead to, you know, inflation, which, you know, is a shadow tax that hurts people, especially like in lower incomes and on fixed incomes. Right. So there's, there's consequences to all of that. When, if we just kind of give the industry time to catch up, like tell them like, you know, this is a laudable goal, get industry to start looking into these green technologies, bring down the cost of doing that. And then, and then move forward when it's more realistic. Yeah. So I think something to consider here, kind of at the meta levels, organic versus inorganic change. And that bias towards action implies that we can make that change inorganically and have the outcomes that we desire. And it, it typically minimizes randomness, minimizes the impact of complex systems, and suggests that we, we have a complete model of how the environment works and the outcomes that we're going to achieve. And when you're thinking about what their what their stated goal is, which is to improve the agenda and the coordination across countries, and then you take into account what we talked about, the game theory of how different countries would operate under a regime that was trying to put these ideas into place, you can already see the challenge with this model playing out. And it's there. I, I want to avoid being overly cynical here because, again, some of these goals are, are laudable. The challenge becomes at what cost, right? And, and Scott and I were talking about it offline. If you asked a computer simulation the, the, the best way to clean up the environment, you know, its answer is to get rid of humans or to get rid of a large chunk of humans. Or perhaps maybe the better solution is for us to go back to being cave dwellers and to having no electricity at all. And then you start to look at all of the other solutions that are out there that are non-tenable to the 7 billion participants on this planet. And that's what you have to be asking yourself. What are the costs here, right? So but let's, let's move on to their last pillar, which is harness the innovations of the fourth industrial revolution for public good, health, and social ch- uh, challenges. Now, when I think of the, the fourth industrial revolution, I, I've heard some different definitions of it. To me, it's the information age, it's the digital age, but I'm mostly hearing it's the transhuman age, i.e. adding uh, us synthesizing with robots and other types of technology to become non-human, essentially. What, what, what is your take on what that yeah. means? The, uh, this, to me, was the most Orwellian um, a pillar or objective. Um, Do you mean Orwell from, in a good way, like everyone else? <laughs> no, bad. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, right down to their name, the Fourth Industrial Revolution, right? I mean, it just yeah, kind of really. makes me think of, you know, thought crime and things like that. Um, right. Right. So when I read it, yeah, it's the, the, the merger of biology and technology. Um, sometimes the, the the actual merger, like the idea of putting you know microchips in your arms or uh, nanotech not nanotech um, used to help uh, the the state predict crimes and prevent crimes before they happen, kind of that future crime concept from the minority report. Um, but then also just the implementation of like medical passports or immunity passports that you have to show at borders in order to enter a country. Um, 
and the upshot of it is is these types of things like it's it's destruction of privacy um mm-hmm. you know if you if you're walking around with nano particles floating around in your body so that the government can read your state of mind at any particular time or a microchip so the government knows if you're sick or if you're not sick or where you're going, you know, what country you're going into. Um, that's, that's frightening to me. Like I know, I know our privacy has largely been, been destroyed, has been severely eroded, but this, this is like the Patriot Act on steroids. I mean, this is just going way too far. And I think it would eventually you know, and it may start off innocuous enough, like, well, we just want to make sure that we're not spreading COVID around the world or we're not spreading other diseases around the world and things like that. But at what point is it going to get to, or how long would it be before they're monitoring everywhere you're going? And if they see you jaywalk, um, you know, in downtown Denver, they're not going to send a drone out there to chase after you and hand you a ticket you know, because you committed a crime with no one was looking, right. but they were still monitoring you. And then, yeah. you know, how long would it be after that before, you know, the, the drone acts as judge adjudicates you right there, says you're guilty. And then, you know, if your bank account's all electronic, right, it just automatically deducts the fine right out of your bank account. And you're standing there, you going like, you know, what the hell just happened <laughs> across the yeah, street? The, uh, now I'm, you know, now I'm $200 poor. Yeah. So, and then that the, goes uh, into drone. the social... Judge Dredd. <laughs> yeah. And so in this, it goes into the social credit score too, right? It's like, oh, well, they, we caught you jaywalking when you thought no one was looking. Does that going to reduce your social credit score? So now is that going to cost you more to fly? Right. So, it, you know, and again, right, slippery slope. And it, it may sound absurd, but I, I I could see a day when that happens. Well, and, and you don't have to look too far when uh, I believe it was Singapore introduced an app on phones uh, to help track COVID. So this was last year uh, and it was under the auspices of this is a medical tool to help prevent the spread of COVID. Now, because every phone now is tracked, they said that they can now use it for investigating crimes of any kind. Now, again, you, you, you hear that and you go, well, that is that so bad? Well, how exactly is that going to be interpreted? And how exactly is that information going to be used? And what are they going to do next is, is the question that we should have. And it's, it's interesting because this actually goes down to the concept of the Bill of Rights protection. And, and we talked about that from a censorship perspective. But you know, what protections do individuals have of their data, of their information? And if you establish that in a country, so, you know, perhaps Europe would have stricter or a stronger Bill of Rights than, let's say, the United States. Well, if you're coordinating across geographies, whose rights supersede the others, right? Which, which again, speaks to the challenges. And some of that just has to do with cultural nuances and belief systems and value systems that are just going to be different. And, uh, but I, I agree with you, this, this idea that we are going to improve and solve the problem. And the problems that they talk about, again, are very uh, high level. They talk about public good, health, and social challenges. And one has to wonder what is meant by using technology to, to solve those if they are uh, this idea of combining us with, with technology. Um, you know, I, I think about kind of a simple one that 
a lot of people that have less money eat bad food and therefore overweight. So obesity can be um, kind of larger at the at the bottom ends of the socioeconomic ladder. Well, are you going to tax those people more for eating food that they only they can afford in order to improve their health? And so you're tracking all of their purchases and you're, you're, you're taxing them a certain way. Are you, and are you going to argue, well, that's an incentive for these people? And I know that there's people all, already today would say, well, that's um, is that such a bad thing? I mean, they read the book Nudge and they talked about, well, can we nudge these people in certain certain directions and just put the fruit above the potato chips? Well, what if they don't take the fruit? Are you going to ask, are you going to go to another level, especially if you actually coordinate all of this into the cost of health care? Now, it, it's, it seems to me that the, the natural state is that people are going to work to continually tinker with the system to improve outcomes. I mean, even here, the entire assessment that is given for this Great Reset is that the system doesn't work. And yet, if you took someone like Pinker, Stephen Pinker, and you look at his thesis, is that we are getting – we've actually are getting much better across most of the measures from infant mortality to death to suicides to uh, fatalities and crashes. You just look at a subset, of, uh, not a subset, a large set of metrics and society at large globally is improving. There's fewer people living off a dollar today than 50 years ago. So are we take that, that thinking, well, these people are saying, well, that's not good enough. We have more problems. So you have to expect that we're going to have new problems in the future, however small or tiny, that they're going to work with these systems and these technologies to try and solve. I think that is a, and again, it doesn't have to be malice. You can go back to these to the idea of like and these people aren't necessarily trying to make things worse or or actually have evil intent. Although that that by itself should be enough to scare people. What what if a bad actor actually got in charge of the social credit system? Or the, the medical system that actually feeds your body with insulin, it's buried in your body. And actually just flip the switch to say, you know what, you're, these, these people, their social score is too low and the cost of maintaining their health is too high and we're going to allow them to, to perish. That sounds very draconian, but wh- why would they not do it? Because you could, you could say, well, we have all these other citizens that are good citizens that are doing their, their job and their role and they need and we have a cost here to pay for it. Let's pay for them. Right. Yeah. These kind of the idea that th- these folks are no mo- no longer productive members of society and there's a cost to keeping them around. So in, in order for there to be fairness and equity, then maybe we should just once people reach a certain point where their their productivity and their value has decreased uh, enough, uh, we, we just get rid of them. Right. And there's nothing you can do about that. Like it's some bureaucrat who can, you know, hit the enter key on a keyboard somewhere or not even that it's an AI who's making the decision without any human oversight. Um, right. That's, that's kind of one of the scary things about this. Um, you know, and you mentioned like the bill of rights and things like, you know, what does this do to the freedom of association? Right. If, you know, if I go somewhere, you know, and meet someone in the middle of the night and the government sees that these two people were meeting and this one person's a bad guy, then do they instantly assume that the other person is up to no good too? And then, then, uh, you know, how, how does all that work? Um, right. You know, to your point about, 
you know, reconciling the idea of rights between different countries and different cultures. I think the pushback on that would be, well, it's going to be one set of standard rights across the world. Right. So it's it's going to be the same for the U.S. as it is for Germany, as it is for Singapore, as it is for China. Um, and, but again, how are, how are you going to get the people to agree to that? Do you think the Chinese are going to say, yeah, freedom of the press, freedom of the speech, let's go for it? Or are they going to push back heavily on that? And, and, and you would expect the, them to. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, again, back to the point I brought up earlier, I think nationalism is going to be a huge, huge impediment to this. But yeah, who knows? Yeah. You know, I never would have thought that the world would have gone along with being locked down for so long um, uh, due to a virus. And yet here we are um, still, yeah. you know, still under restrictions and lockdowns. So I don't know. Well, I'm just enjoying my bed and my, my, the, uh, the chains on the wall that keep me in place are just, they grow more comfortable by the day. <laughs> right. Yeah. That uh, IV in your arm with all the happy drugs in it. And, you know, uh, that's right. Was, was that's it called right. Soma in Brave New it's, World? Soma, it is I think called is what Soma. Called yeah. It. Yeah. Um, you know, in your endless Netflix, uh, and Amazon Prime binging. Yeah. So don't, don't take away the real drugs or I may hit you. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So, okay, so we, we've gone over the Great Reset, at least its pillars. I know there's a lot more details. There's, there's many, many articles. They're expecting to expand it. I think we've, we've talked about why we think this is a unworkable or very challenging concept. And, and in some ways, it's not even that challenging. It's not, it's not even that well-defined. So let's get to what I think people really want to know. Is this a conspiracy? Scott, is this a conspiracy that they should be worried about? Um, something to be worried about? Uh, yes. I think there is definitely something there. Um, we, we'll, we can get to that in a, in a minute. Is it a big conspiracy or you know something that rises to the level of like the Illuminati or something? I don't think so. Yeah. Um, you know, I think we were both disappointed. We were hoping for more Illuminati, <laughs> right, right. lizard hoping, people. Yeah, I was hoping for more shadowy, uh, you know, uh, right. uh, deep state, you know, Illuminati type things. But we didn't get it. I mean, the World Economic Forum and, you know, Klaus Schwab, the guy who's kind of the author of this entire thing, is pretty open about what the goal is. Um, like we said, they didn't really state a lot about what the actual prescription was for getting there. Um, but the objectives, you know, they don't seem to be hiding it. Um, you know, the, the only thing I could think of is that, you know, maybe they're using this idea, these, these virtuous ideas to maybe hide their real agenda, which is to accumulate wealth and power. Um, but maybe not, you know, maybe these are all just very benevolent people who are, they really think that they're doing good. Um, so I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I, I don't think it's a conspiracy. I think the model of these, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions explains a lot of this. If you look back at the, the history of the European Union, it started off um, as, a, as a business arrangement between a Frenchman and a German not them specifically, but they were looking with the, the hypothesis was if we can get our countries to have more uh, business linkages, the idea, uh, the idea of war will just be too costly. Right. And so that was, that was sort of the birth of the European union. And you sort of see the way it evolves, but you, you still have this idea. We don't want war. We don't want war in, in Europe. 
And and I could see where the people that are running this show, they, they look at the uh, – as, as much as the world improves, there's still a lot of turmoil in the world. And so they, they see all those problems. And they think, well, how could we solve all those? And what they what they don't realize or they, they're not asking the question of is, well, what's the cost of trying to solve it in this particular way? Uh, and, and I think that's just the, the nature of it. And there's also a model I always have in the back of my mind too – uh, which is the sacred cow and sacrificial lamb, that every group, depending on their values, has a sacred cow that you can't touch. And they also have the sacrificial lamb that they're willing to throw overboard at any point. And the if there's something that's kind of scary to me is that there isn't enough pushback on, on the WEF in general of saying some of these ideas are just garbage. I mean, what you hear is, is people like us um, – Sort of the, the 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 off off on the side commentary class, if you will, that's having an opinion, and then you you have some writers maybe in in um, uh, different publications, the New York Times or the Atlantic, uh, that that may write about these ideas, but they they don't really give them enough scrutiny uh, from what from what little I've I've seen, and, and perhaps I'm I'm missing a, a bigger picture. So you know, to sum it up, it's not it's not so much that these are uh, it's a conspiracy uh, of a shadow government. I, I don't think that's the case. But I do think that there, these ideas need to be challenged uh, with much more vigor and much more analysis and that we will all be better for it. Because if it does come down to this starts to become part of the agenda that you're seeing in your country, then you should be uh, concerned. Because these ideas, even on a local level, present many, many costs. And it's easy to dismiss those costs up front. And that, that to me, is this idea of, um, you know, we call it the minimization idea, the minimization model, where you just want to minimize every single cost that you don't understand and don't like. And you're going to maximize, to maybe even an exponential way, all the benefits. Uh, and, and, and you see this time and time again. I mean, if you look at energy consumption and the, the push towards green energy in Europe, you see that their costs have gone up. They have not gone down. And there's outstanding questions about how they recycle the equipment. The, the turbines, the wind turbines that they use in, uh, in Holland, as an example, and, and offshore, they, uh, they are coated in a certain material. And I, I don't have the actual name of the material, but when they, when they, Fall when when they are no longer usable, they they reach their their um, end of use, uh, end of a useful life. They have to discard them in trash. They're not recycled. They're not able to recycle the metal. None of it's recyclable. Is that better than taking oil or coal out of the ground and burning it? Well, that's a discussion. But it's it, assuming that one is superior to the other is a a faulty assumption. So. Uh, that's that's where I would land on is it a conspiracy and should you be worried? Right uh, now is it, so we're, you know is it a conspiracy? No, I don't think it is. At least not something that rises to the level of like what we consider like a JFK lizard assassination. People. Yeah, lizard people <laughs> conspiracy theory. You know, should you be worried? Well, I mean, change is coming. I think that's inevitable, and I think some of it is going to a lot of it is going to mirror what we talked about as being a part of the great reset. Now I wouldn't jump to a conclusion to say that when you see a change, that it's, that it means that we've adopted the great reset plan and that we're moving to it. Right. I think, you know, 
but the changes will come. So we're going to have political, social, and economic changes. So when you see them, you know, realize that, you know, that's a part of life, right? And so do what you have to, to position yourself as best as you can in light of those new changes, right? Don't just think that it's not going to happen. Um, you know, you know, these, the medical passports, I mean, it it sounds like it's a very real possibility that that's, that's going to become a thing. Um, so if, you know, if you're against giving the COVID vaccine, right, you, you have to consider that, right? Are your movements going to get restricted because you don't have the vaccine? Um, also, you know, moving forward to, you know, how you earn your money, you know, how you make your living um, is something to consider. So technology and AI is a big part of the Great Reset. And we've been hearing for years about how the automation is going to displace workers. Well, you know, if you're in a job now where you're likely to get re- get replaced by a, a robot, then start getting some skills, right? Start making the plan to transition to another position, to another career now before it's too late. Um, yeah. And, you know, and I think more regulations coming. I think we're going to see every little ripple in the social fabric is going to become it is going to be compared with a lot of discussion about new regulations. Um, just the GameStop thing, you know, which, <laughs> yes, you know, it was big news and it cost some hedge funds an awful lot of money. And there's a lot of talk of new regulations coming with it. So right. in every time we see something like that happen, right, the politicians, they're up, like you said, right, don't waste a good crisis, right? They're going to be jumping right in there with their talk of new regulations. Um, and, you know, and like in the GameStop example, right, you're starting to, you're hearing a lot of politicians push back on that saying, hey, 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 wait a minute, you know, we don't need to overregulate. Let's, let's think about this, right? And this is both sides of the aisle. I think Ted Cruz and AOC and the squad have both, you know, found some common ground on this. Um, but my point is, is there's always going to be a reaction to these things that are going to cause some people to push change. So, like I said, I know I've said it a few times, I'm going to say it again, right? Be ready for it. You know, position yourself so that um, it doesn't harm you as much um, as it as it could. Um, so just, you know, get yourself informed. Uh, learn how to kind of look at these things with a critical eye. Don't overreact, but don't underreact. And I think you'll be in a good, sh- good shape. Yeah. I, I think that is a perfect point to end on. So thanks everyone for joining us for our conversation of the Great Reset. If you've got ideas, thoughts, questions, if you think we're wrong and this is the grand conspiracy, let us know. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Or and, if you uh, can't and, wait for the Great Reset to come along, <laughs> let yeah, us know. Well, yeah. I would like to hear from those folks too. <laughs> I would love to hear your thoughts about what we got wrong on the Great Reset because it's the best thing since sliced bread. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. And uh, we'll talk to you on the next episode.